0: Do you know what a medical device is?
1: So a medical device is an instrument of some kind, almost anything, which can be utilized in a therapeutic manner, usually.
0: Hi, can I ask you guys a question? Are you in a rush? Uh,
2: Oh God, you might not like the answer.
0: (laughs) Do you know what a medical device is?
3: Uh, Yeah, I guess.
0: Can you give an example of one?
3: Oh God, like... An
4: ultrasound?
3: Yeah, an ultrasound?
0: It's
4: anything that um, the hospital uses to treat people in the surgery or in normal clinical practices, like the MRI machine or even a surgical knife could be considered a medical device.
5: Ask 10 different people on the streets of Toronto what they consider to be a medical device and you'll get 10 different answers. The term medical device includes a broad range of tools and seems to be interpreted differently from person to person. What is for certain is that these tools have revolutionized the field of medicine. They've advanced our understanding of the human body, allowed us to detect complex medical conditions, and enabled healthcare professionals to perform procedures that we wouldn't have been able to dream of in the past. What's going on, listeners? This is Anton. And this is James. And welcome to episode 50 of Raw Talk.
3: In this episode, we're diving headfirst into the realm of medical devices. First off, Bonnie sat down with Dr. David Urbach, Surgeon-in-Chief at Women's College Hospital and Professor at the University of Toronto, to hear an expert's take on what exactly qualifies as a medical device, whether or not they're safe to begin with, and how exactly they're regulated. All right, let's get started. Here's Dr. David Urbach. So a medical device is any product that's used
6: in a healthcare context. So um, people think medical devices are things that have to be implanted in the body. And there's certainly types of devices, but everything. So hospital beds, chairs, lifts, crutches are medical devices, infusion pumps, uh, software programs, all sorts of really any health product that's not a drug is considered a medical device.
0: Are there any medical devices that people would not think it's a medical device? Like is a Fitbin a medical device?
6: Um, Can it
0: actually measure heart rate?
6: Yeah. So there are wearables or uh, there are definitely sensors that measure physiologic um, uh, characteristics like, you know, blood pressure or heart rate or or step counters. Um, Now, They're not really a medical device if you're not using them for any medical or healthcare purpose. If you're just using it to monitor your own exercise or for entertainment, then I I wouldn't call it a medical device. But the moment you use it where the intended purpose is to, you know, diagnose, treat, prevent, or cure a disease, as they say in the uh, commercials, then it becomes a medical device.
0: So it kind of depends on how you're actually using it then in some cases. What type of medical devices, as a surgeon do you work with on a day-to-day basis? So maybe these are medical devices that are, are not necessarily in contact with the patient for a very long time.
6: Yeah, so in surgery, we use a lot of devices kind of as surgical tools that may not be implantable or durable and may not stay in a person. But we use lots of, I mean, first of all, we use surgical instruments. So even just scalpels and scissors and clamps are devices we use uh, surgical staplers, there's energy devices, there's video devices that we use for inspection and recording of operations. And then obviously, there's implantable products. So people think a lot about joint prosthetic joints. Uh, So a prosthetic is a an artificial part of the body. You know, there's been a lot of discussion, especially in the media about things like surgical mesh, polypropylene mesh materials, you know, but devices are ubiquitous so anesthetists use anesthesia machines which are big complex devices infusion machines intravenous infusion machines that are programmed to infuse drugs and fluids at a certain rate are also devices so you can't
3: get away from them they they're completely pervasive all over healthcare now that we have a better understanding what constitutes a medical device let's hear from someone that lives with one Richie caught up with Doug a man living with Parkinson's disease and his wife Diane who shared their experiences before and after deep brain stimulation, a treatment for advanced Parkinson's when medications no longer keep symptoms at bay. Hi everyone, it's Richie here, and today I'm sitting down with Doug and Diane. Um, We're gonna tell me a little
7: bit about Doug's experience living with Parkinson's disease and some of the things that he tried, and then eventually how that led him to pursue deep brain stimulation or DBS as a treatment, and what happened. So hi Doug, hi Diane, thank you for joining me today. I thought maybe we could start by, uh, Doug, if you took me through some of the moments leading up to your diagnosis of Parkinson's, and then what the first year was like living with the disorder.
1: I got diagnosed by accident, I think. Oh yeah, I was driving my little truck at work one day, and I got mad at a guy, hey, Richie? Yep.
7: Yeah.
1: And they took me in the cafeteria and wanted to talk to me. I didn't get wrong, but a buddy sat across from me, a friend of mine, and he said, Doug, you're shaking. So I thought, well, he said, you better go to doctor and get that checked out. So I went to Dr. Lisa Dahl, being chosen here, and she recommended that I go to the sleep clinic in Paris. Well, my wife and I waved way below Paris. Walked in there, and I wasn't there. They put a bunch of little clips on my thumb, my fingers. They'd done that test. And I sat across from the fellow, and he talked to me, and he asked Diane to leave the room. So Diane left the room. And he he asked me to get up and walk down the hall. I walked down the hall, come back, sat down. He looked at me, and he looked at me kind of funny. And he says to me, he says, Doug, he says, I think you got Parkinson's. I says, what? So that was okay. And then I go back to work. So I went and talked to my boss, and he said they would let me stay on my lift truck, and they would monitor me. So they did that for a year and a half. Right. And I didn't really have bad shaking, just a little tremor here and there. Then one night at work, I went and pushed the gas pedal on my lift truck to raise the stack up, you know, and bang, I couldn't do it. So I went over to my supervisor and I told him I can't do it no more. He says, well, you got it, Doug, you got to do it. So anyway, I went to the doctor, came back with the paperwork. They said, we we got no work available, Mr. Gronson. That's when the shaking started. And that went on for a couple of years.
7: And this would have been about a year and a half after that initial visit to the doctor? Yep.
1: April 12, 2006, I was diagnosed. And in July 2008, I was all done work.
7: And so could you tell me a little bit about the symptoms? How did that impact your day-to-day?
1: The symptoms were, I didn't blink when I talked to another person. Later on, it got to me: my arm twitched. Having Parkinson's wasn't the problem. The problem was the dyskinesia. And sometimes I had to shower three times a day. Dropping my coffee once in a while. One time we were standing in the driveway having a beer, and I threw a beer on a coolie
7: cup. And so as soon as this entered your experience, did the doctor suggest that you try any medication? Was it the the standard L-DOPA that a lot of patients get?
1: Yeah, they sent me to London to see a, a guy called Dr. Jog. He's
8: a neurologist.
1: He put me on a very small dosage of levodopa. That seemed to help a little bit. Then things got moving on, moving on. I got this damn dyskinesia.
7: Some other alternatives that maybe the physician told you to explore.
1: Well, later, later on, they put me on a drug called amantidine and levodopa. I was up to four levodopa pills a day and, and one But
7: Did that work for you? Did you have any any side effects with the medication?
1: No side effects, but I really had that dyskinesia.
8: He he actually could handle the tremor part of Parkinson's, but then with the dyskinesia that we call the jerking, it was so vicious it wore him right. <coughs> excuse me, wore him right out. Right. And it didn't seem, the, the, the amadine helped a little, but not as much as we would hope. I think he was so embarrassed and frustrated, sometimes didn't want to go out to things because he was afraid, you know, to go out for a meal with somebody, that he'd feel food and, you know, and then have trouble walking. His feet would shuffle to the point where I was scared he was going to fall.
7: You were so frustrated with the, the dyskinesia that you were, at this point, willing to try anything new as long as it seemed to work. Yes, I really got mad. <laughs> I really got yeah,
8: yes. and he's not a medical person. They're like hospitals or doctors, but he said, yes, I'm going to do it. <laughs> I couldn't
1: get in there quick enough.
7: Right, right. So how did it go? Yeah, how was your first session? How did you come away feeling after that?
1: Oh, I felt great. <laughs> really? About what changed lot? for you? I have no dyskinesia now.
7: Uh-huh.
1: I have no shaking, hardly at all. Not very, very little. Oh, I'm on no medications now whatsoever. No really? Lever- no burn,
7: nothing. And you've just had the one session then? Yeah. Oh, great. And how long was that session? What could, could you maybe take me through what that was like? What was that procedure like?
8: No, it was more like about six hours surgery, I can tell you. They did an MRI on him, uh, CT scan or whatever it was, first thing in the morning. He went up the night before to London, stayed overnight. In the morning, they did a scan on his head, then they took him to the operating room, I think it was about seven. They did not put him to sleep. He tells me they put freezing in about three areas of his head. Local freezing. Right.
1: One above the eye. and Two in the back of the neck.
8: The upper forehead. And then they hold into there to identify and put a rack on his head so that he would hold still somehow like they did that. But he was awake because he had to answer questions for them. And move and show where he might be shaking at a certain time, I think. And it, it worked.
1: Like a charm. <laughs>
7: Would you say that uh, it's restored day-to-day function? Are you able to go back to oh, regular yeah, activities? Yeah, yeah. And...
1: Um, yeah I got a little lizard for you. I can brush my teeth, I can shave, I can comb my hair, I can tie my shoes, I can put on my button, I can button my shirt. Buggle my belt. A lot of those things I couldn't do before. By
7: all accounts, got... basic day-to-day things, right? That you just weren't accessible oh, yeah, to you before Oh, very much that. So.
8: Oh, big improvement. Right. Huge.
7: That's great to hear. Would you say that there are any side effects or any risks that maybe you've experienced as a result of it?
8: No,
1: none right now. I hope not.
8: They waited a month before they would take a, start weaning him off his levodopa and amatidine. They waited a month for everything to be healed.
1: Then they fired up the pacemaker. Then, and then... they
8: started up the device.
1: So yes. I've been I've been I've been about since uh May now with the machine running by itself. See they give me a machine. It's a remote control. It's called a Biosyn Scientific. It's a remote control thing and they give me limits. I can set it myself at home.
7: And what does the what does the machine allow you to do? Allows
1: well, me to increase the voltage or decrease it, whatever I'd like. I can go up or down both ways.
8: He carries an identification card like people with a pacemaker do. He's supposed to stay away from not too close to the microwave, about the airport, let them know ahead of time, and they can do a different scan on him, and no arc welder, but he's not near that anyway. I see. But, yeah. So, totally, he's had the disease 12 and a half years.
7: And you would say that the last couple months have just been almost a different chapter?
8: Oh, yeah. Fantastic. Oh, He's thrilled. So everybody, all his friends can't believe it. He has golfed so much this summer, it is insane. Like three or four times a week, and he loves it. He got a hole in one. Like he is so much better because he used to jerk, he'd get ready and all set up, and then his arm would go funny, (laughs) eh? Yeah.
7: Wow. Well, that's just great to hear. Yeah. And, Doug, do you know anyone else who did this?
8: Yes. I talked to a lady
1: from Amherstburg.
8: Amherstburg down by... um,
1: she had a little pieces of the London paper about deep brain stimulation. Yes. Yeah. We called her and talked to her, and she recommended I try it. So, way to go. I did it.
8: And since then, we've heard from about three other people. Different people have told us, friends and stuff. So, i called them, and all of them have had a very good success rate. One guy is back doing, like, long distance running, and he does also um, boxing. It's a new thing that London offers, I guess. Some kind of a hard rock boxing or something. Right. Helps with balance and control and, you know, positioning and stuff. And um, But the one fellow didn't do so well, but they said they feel his Parkinson's is too advanced, you know. You have to catch the right spot, they said, you know. Right. Be helpful.
1: Yeah, I like uh, that. Doctor, parent, boy, he's my friend now. (laughs) Yeah, he likes him. And
8: also, he's supposed to get maybe the... A uh, battery in the device maybe every 10 to 12 years will need to be changed.
7: So uh, just one last question that I have is, um, what would you say to someone who maybe is in the position you were in a couple of years ago and is clearly struggling with their disorder, has heard about DBS but just isn't quite sure, is a little bit apprehensive about taking the jump?
8: I'll tell you what, I highly recommend it. Doug was very fortunate because he had really good results, you know. He's much happier wants to do everything because before I think he was like I said embarrassed nervous frustrated worn out he was absolutely worn out there's no way he could drive his his knee with his right knee I hit I had to drive when we went somewhere his right knee was hitting the side of the doorway door about for an hour he couldn't control it. it was just bang bang bang
7: right. Now
1: I'm back driving full-time.
7: And, Doug, you also alluded to the fact that your mood was quite low, was quite negative um, leading up to that procedure. It's just great to hear that it's restored function and just allowed you to live your life. you know,
8: his balance is better. He's walking better. Um, I just can't say how many different things. Like, it's amazing. He's, like before, had trouble brushing his teeth, combing his hair, things like that. Now he's just in and out and really better. Buckling his belt, you know, sometimes I'd have to button some shirt, tie in his shoes, putting on socks. Um, it's just really amazing. I would recommend it, boy.
7: Well, there you have it. Doug and Diane, thanks again for joining us, and we wish you all the best.
8: Oh, thank you thank so you much. much. I appreciate that, and I hope it helps some other people. Yes, me too.
3: As you just heard, medical devices can have a tremendous impact on people's lives. But what steps need to be taken before patients have access to them? Bonnie asked Dr. Erbach what sort of regulatory processes these devices go through before they're put on the market. And he said that medical devices are put into four classes. Devices in class 1 have less rigorous testing because they're quite low risk, like hospital beds. And class 4 devices have very rigorous testing as they're quite high risk, like infusion pumps.
0: So is that different from how drugs go to market? Like are there class 1 to class 4 drugs or are all drugs just considered class 4 because... Yes, I guess it could be...
6: So all drugs are class four, but they're class four plus. So this is actually a great question because people don't quite understand the differences in the nature of the evaluation of drugs that come to market and other health products that come to market. So drugs are subject to a huge amount of regulatory oversight and also an extraordinary amount of scientific investigation. So Health Canada or the FDA require what we call uh, controlled clinical trials or randomized controlled trials, where a drug is tested in large numbers of human subjects against either a placebo or some comparator drug. And the subjects are evaluated for a period of time with careful measurements. These are very large studies. They're very expensive studies. And at the ends of these clinical trials, you generally have a fairly good sense of the safety and effectiveness of the drug. There are relatively few new drugs that come to market every year. People are actually shocked. There's lots of drugs out there, but there's only like a dozen or two dozen new molecules that get licensed by the FDA or Canada each year. So it's not such a huge job to deal with the evaluation and regulation of drugs. There's a huge amount of work and these, these studies are enormously expensive. They run into the hundreds of millions of dollars and these days possibly A billion plus of dollars to get a drug to market but there's not that many of them there are tons of devices there are tens of thousands probably hundreds of thousands of uh, licensed devices on the market and with thousands of new ones coming on every year and when you just think about the numbers One thing you know right away is nobody's spending a billion dollars on each of these new devices.
0: And there must be not enough time to do that.
6: (laughs) Correct. There's not enough time. There's not enough people. And the life cycle of devices are very different. So devices, by and large, are engineered products. So you have a fairly good idea of how a device is going to behave based on how you constructed it. Now, your question is, are they evaluated the same way? Yeah. And the answer is no. The evaluation typically takes a much shorter period of time. It's typically done in far fewer people. So instead of clinical trials that enroll often hundreds or thousands of people, the clinical trials of devices maybe include 40 people, 60 people, but never, you know, thousands of individuals who have a device used or implanted and then followed for multiple years. That doesn't happen. Devices also don't have the same market durability or exclusivity because of patenting that medications have. So once if you're a a drug manufacturer and you have a new drug that you're going to bring to market, you get a very durable patent on that new drug and you get market exclusivity for a period of you know nearly two decades during which you can get a lot of return on investment. Devices don't really work that way. There's lots of different manufacturers. There's lots of different modifications of devices and they change all the time.
0: So are they usually just on the market for a shorter period of time?
6: They're, de- they're on the market for a shorter period of time. There's more competition and the way uh, that device manufacturers work their whole business model is through being very responsive and nimble and listening to the concerns of healthcare providers. So for example, it's not uncommon for a manufacturer to kind of, you know, speak to a, um, a user of a device like, oh, you know, Dr. Smith, you're using our implantable joint. What do you think of the joint? What do your patients think of it? What do you think could be improved? AstraZeneca doesn't go to family doctors saying, what do you think of our new cholesterol lowering agent? Like how would you modify the chemical? that Interaction doesn't exist with drugs, but it's very common with devices. So the whole business model is different. The product life cycle is different. They're on the market for a shorter period of time. And the return on investment is much lower for non-pharmaceutical
3: medical products. We asked what problems can arise from not spending as much time and resources testing medical devices as we do with pharmaceuticals. The other side
6: of the coin is that even though we think we have a pretty good idea about the safety of devices we really don't have that good of an idea because when they come to market and they're licensed they've typically been evaluated in studies on a few dozen people maybe a hundred people so you can't know everything about a device if it's been used in about a hundred people even if you've made very careful me- measurements and followed how the patients have done, particularly because you're not following the patients out 5 or 10 years. These are short-term studies. The device is almost certainly not going to be used in 5 or 10 years.
0: Unless, I guess, it's like a joint replacement or something, because you usually don't get those replaced. It's usually at least 20 years you have a joint replacement, Correct, right? for the
6: person. But the surgeon is not going to be implanting that the same type of joint in 2010 as they did in 2000 like they change all the time so if you did let's say health canada and the fda decided okay no let's wait guys we don't know what's if this thing is safe until we follow patients for 10 years they'll go to the manufacturer and say no no you got to do studies and follow the patients for 10 years the manufacturers are going to spend tens of millions of dollars follow these patients 10 years from now there's going to be a new device on the market so you'll do all these studies that that have no value because The evolution of devices and the life cycle is short and they change much more quickly. So
5: it's a bit of a conundrum. Next, I spoke to Amy Kahn, an MD-PhD student at the University of Toronto. Her research focuses on surgical engineering with a special interest in increasing the safety of laparoscopic surgery. But before we delve into her research, I asked Amy what her definition of a medical device is.
2: I think a medical device is one that's been engineered for a health reason. Um, it doesn't have to be what I do, like surgical engineering, making surgical tools. I think it can actually cover a wide range of applications, from like TMS to Dr. Shaf XOR lung perfusion device, to simple as something like a splint for a broken finger.
5: I asked Amy what got her interested in surgical engineering.
2: When I started the MD PhD program, I was originally going to be doing my PhD in physics. I did my master's in medical biophysics at Western and I did a lot of MRI research on uh, three Tesla and seven Tesla, um, ultra high field imaging of the brain for Alzheimer's disease. So I was thinking of doing something similar, but then we have something called day of the doctor and then in day of the doctor as like a new medical student, who's never been to the operating room, never been on the wards, like in a clinical capacity, they pair you up with a physician around Toronto and you get to see what they do for the day. So I was with a surgeon, and I got to go to the operating room for the first time, and it blew my mind. It was incredible. I think it's the coolest place in the world. One of my first operations was with my supervisor. I'm co-supervised. So one of my co-supervisors is Dr. James Drake. Um, He's the head of neurosurgery at SickKids, but he's also now the head of all surgery at SickKids. He's a wonderful person. And I scrubbed in with him at SickKids, and we had to remove the skull of a child, and the brain was pulsating. And he's like, Amy, come. Come and touch this. And I touched somebody's alive, pulsating brain. And what did that feel like? bizarre (laughs) bizarre all the brain pictures you see in medical textbooks it's not like that no no it was more like jello yeah it's very like wiggly soft i thought it'd be like more hard but those are like plastinated brains you see um like in museums and stuff like an alive brain is very squishy and it was just crazy and then I, i i scrubbed in for another surgery like an open heart cardiac surgery And I touched somebody's beating heart, and then it stopped beating. And that was incredible. That's so cool. And then when you get to actually operate on somebody yourself, it's really cool. Very special.
5: So it sounds like Amy's career completely changed trajectories after her experience at Day of the Doctor. Listen as Amy shares how her experience in the OR sparked an idea for her PhD project.
2: On Day of the Doctor, I was in the operating room, and... One of the surgeons asked me to hold a laparoscopic tool. So in laparoscopic surgery, it's completely different from conventional open surgery. So in conventional open surgery, that's when a person is on the operating room table and they're very large incisions and the surgeon's hands will go into your abdominal cavity and tools are larger. Um, The surgeon can actually visualize tissues directly. But in laparoscopic surgery, we make very tiny holes, these keyhole ports that we put Laparoscopic tools in, and they're very long so they can go through your abdominal cavity. Um, And then we insufflate your abdominal cavity. So you look huge, like pregnant, but that gives us room in your abdominal cavity to work. So I was holding this laparoscopic grasper and I said, How hard do I hold the tissue? And the surgeon says, I don't know. I don't have an actual answer for you because we actually don't quantify the amount of force that we put on tissues. That got me thinking, and I was like, you know what? I'm going to change my PhD from physics to engineering so I can solve this problem. Um, So the first part in solving a problem like this is you have to see how much force a tissue can withstand and then go and make a tool.
5: So what kind of tissue are we talking about?
2: Gastrointestinal tissues. So I focus on small bowel and uh, large bowel colon, um, but my work, my previous work that I've published, I did a uh, stomach, gallbladder, any of the GI tissues I can get pieces of, because what I want to stress about my research is it's not in vivo intraoperatively, because ethically we cannot perform experiments like that. You cannot test a medical device on somebody in the operating room. You don't have to worry in surgery that like all these weird unproven devices are being tested on you. That is not the case whatsoever. So what I do is I go in, I scrub in for the surgery. Your surgery is exactly the same. There's no change in surgical workflow. And then when we are taking out the sample, so for example, just say um, you're taking out a gallbladder. I take the gallbladder out as part of your surgery. And then whatever piece of the gallbladder is normal, we test on.
5: You'll next hear from a DT who traveled to Holland Bloorview, a children's rehabilitation hospital in Toronto, to chat with George Hanna, a Master of Applied Science candidate. George conducts his research at the Pediatric Rehabilitation Intelligence System Multidisciplinary Lab, or commonly referred to as the PRISM Lab, which uses applied science and engineering to maximize the potential of children and youth with disabilities. Take a listen to some of the cutting-edge, almost science fiction-type work that is being explored in Toronto.
9: What are the types of projects that are currently going on in your lab?
5: The lab itself actually has
10: a very wide range of projects. I I would say there's a general theme of brain-computer interfaces. And that's the idea of, you know, translating someone's EEG signals or electroencephalography, so brain signals, into some kind of command that's useful on a computer. And the reason being is for many, many people, that is the last line of communication that they're able to to offer. Uh, They maybe can't speak, they're locked in, they might have cerebral palsy, they might have muscular dystrophy. So maybe moving their hands or or anything like that might not be feasible. And so if you think of the brain as being kind of the last frontier, if you can convert those signals into someone saying yes or no on a computer or you know uh, let's say someone's in a wheelchair moving their wheelchair around just by thinking of certain directions and whatnot Mm -hmm. that would be kind of the the most used or th- those are the most relevant projects that we do my project specifically is actually a bit more on the engineering side so it is a brain computer interface and it's meant to be a wearable headband that converts where someone is looking into you know some kind of environmental control so imagine if someone's sitting in a wheelchair they look left and then the wheelchair moves left they look right the wheelchair oh moves so
9: left. it's like using body commands, or parts that you can manipulate in order to help them move physically.
10: Exactly. So it's it's translating eye movement into navigation. It could be also moving a cursor on a screen, right? So it's anything like that. And the signals I'm using are actually not eye signals, they're actually brain signals. But we can go into that later in terms of technicalities. Other projects as well, you know, some people are measuring brain signals to the ear as ear pieces. That's kind of the new frontier of wearables right now. Some people are trying to create uh, really fast spellers. By capturing whether or not you react to something, so that's a really cool signal that's actually quite used. It's called P300, and uh, if you if you pay attention to something that you that you want, for example, imagine uh, on a screen you have four options, and one of the options you know you want. Maybe that option says bathroom, right? So all of the options are flashing, and when the flash gets to the option that you want, that you're thinking of, your body tends to react because that's the one. You don't say it, but it reacts. Your brain actually generates. Uh, a signal that's saying that's the one I want and we can read that reliably and you know we have demos that we show to people regularly where you know you're controlling music or controlling a fan in the room or moving a, a train on tracks
5: things like that. Pretty cool huh? In a nutshell George's work focuses on using a piece of equipment that is able to read signals from the brain called electroencephalography or EEG for short and interpret specific aspects of that signal, which he referred to as the P300, to allow patients with severe motor disabilities, such as cerebral palsy or ALS, to navigate and communicate with others. Aditi next asked George how he became interested in this line of work. So a couple of years ago, I was taking part in what
10: we call a hackathon. So it's at 48 hours in a weekend where you're you're in a room with a bunch of computer scientists and engineers that are possibly students as well. And you're trying to develop something that's really cool and useful. And at that point, I was in Montreal, I had some of my best friends with me and it was the first time I'd ever come across what we call an EEG headset, so a brain signal headset. It's a really commercial one. It's like maybe $120. But I thought it was really cool because, you know, you could tell if someone was feeling frustrated from it. You could uh, you could tell if someone was blinking. You could tell if someone was falling asleep. And that's exactly what we wanted to do. We wanted to predict whether someone was falling asleep or becoming drowsy mm-hmm. on the wheel while they were driving. So we developed this cool interface and an app and everything, and that's when I, start, I started thinking, you know, like this could be – more, right? If we can control stuff with our thoughts, then you know a lot of stuff, a lot of barriers for people can be removed. And that's where I found the lab initially. So in, in applying for a masters. And when I met Tom, I kind of had that same mentality. I wanted to do a master's project that was useful i didn't want to do a master's project that was you know 10 20 years down the line i wanted something that i could have something ready by two years mm-hmm. where someone could use it and that's kind of i would say the advantage that Holland blurview offers because you're surrounded with the clients you know they have talks they have uh, case studies and whatnot and so initially when i met tom i said i wanted to do a brain computer interface because that's what i like but what i wanted i wanted to be wearable i wanted to be comfortable and I want it to be really reliable. And, you know, he said, obviously he said it's really tough. And, you know, if that was that easy, like people would have done it. And, but Tom is, Tom is extremely encouraging. And, you know, he uh, lets you do whatever you want, assuming your science is sound. And, uh, yeah, I just started doing a search, looked at what's the most reliable thing I can measure in the brain, found that. Then I was like, okay, what's the most comfortable thing I could wear on my head? Found that. So, and
9: what is the most reliable thing you can measure so in your th- brain?
10: So, the most visual, the, the most reliable signal in the brain that you can measure are what we call ssveps. So, they're called steady state visually evoked potentials, and essentially they are your brain's reaction to staring at a stimulus. So, if you imagine a, a an LED in front of your face, a very small LED flashing at a certain frequency, like 10 hertz, you can actually see your brain signals resonating at that frequency in your in your head. Now, if I were to get Four different LEDs have each one flash at a different frequency, and then tell you to stare at the one, a specific one. I can then start telling where you're staring, right? So if you're staring up, and I know that the top one is 10 hertz, then in your brain I say, okay, she's staring at 10 hertz, and I can convert that to something useful, and I can connect up to moving forwards on a wheelchair, or connect it to up on a keyboard where up is the uh, up key, right? And uh, so that it's and it's really really reliable. You know, you could probably spell. In in China, I think there's groups doing about. 200 characters per minute in terms of spelling speeds like they're very reliable systems.
9: that's really fast and
10: so uh i wanted to do something like that that was dry you didn't have to put gel in your hair <laughs> so that was the first thing and i wanted to do it uh comfortably because some of the eeg headsets that we have are just not wearable for more than 30 minutes and um, is it
9: because they're too heavy or just well not practical
10: the, there's several factors again like there's the gel mm-hmm. So you have to inject gel in the hair to like get good contact. Mm. That's not too big of an issue. There's a lot of companies that now offer dry systems. And the other issue is the, just the amplifiers you're using. There's long wires running into these huge amplifiers. Mm-hmm. So it's not like some small circuit that you have in the size of your phone. And uh, the, the last issue is just the environment around you. In a lab, it's really easy. Everything's nice and it's clean and you know, there's no noise and there's no movement. But as soon as you put it on someone who maybe perhaps can't keep their head still, or maybe uh, their head shifts a lot, or maybe their wheelchair is shaking. Then you start getting into more like
5: practical problems. And that's kind of what I wanted to tackle with it. George wasn't kidding when he said he wanted to tackle a master's project that would produce some tangible results in just two years. He has definitely set some ambitious goals for himself. Next, you'll hear him comment on the process of filing for a patent and commercializing a device. He also shares how far along he is in developing his device and what his next steps are.
10: The the nice thing about Holland review is they're very encouraging when it comes to commercialization. We we have our own commercialization team here. Okay, uh, as
9: like it's a part of the lab or as no part of the
10: hospital actually. Part of the hospital. Like it's part technically BRI, so Blueview Research Institute, which is the research wing of the hospital, and you know the woman that runs it, Sharon, is uh, phenomenal. She essentially what they do is they. Let's say you have an idea that you'd like to commercialize so then you approach your supervisor about it You know having a discussion whether or not that's actually feasible if it's ready if it's novel and then he sends an email to Sharon and then Sharon with her team will kind of have a meeting with you they uh, Show you kind of uh, what what are the next possible steps for it? You kind of describe to them what you think could be patentable then they start scheduling meetings with lawyers look at yeah, and then they, they have their own contacts as well and they have their own team where they do a, a literature search to see if anything's been done. They see if, if your thing is really novel or if it's just a, kind of a spin off of something that's already been done. And then by the end of it, the hope is that, you know, you draft up this nice document showing your Mm know-how, and then you submit that, and then the hospital actually submits it. So the IP technically goes under the hospital's name, but you're obviously listed as one of the inventors with your supervisor and whatnot. So the patents that the Prism Lab has, I wouldn't consider them as medical devices because medical devices typically will have classes of invasiveness and whatnot, and you typically have to go through Health Canada and FDA and whatnot. These are more... at least the ones that i that i think you're talking about are more of assistive devices so they're kind of outside of the body you know we have a hummer that can detect if you're humming high pitch or low pitch using accelerometers oh, okay and the idea is many children again are are non-verbal but can hum and so if you connect a, like a hmm to, to a light or like a lower pitch one to something else then you can start having options for what they can do So So like
9: that humming can be translated into something that they want.
10: Exactly. Okay. So this is, again, like the idea behind the lab is it's an access pathway. Whatever Mm -hmm. the individual can do, we're just trying to work with
3: it. We just heard some fascinating work on biomedical engineering. But what happens when devices used to help patients with their condition causes more harm than good?
0: So I guess it's fair to say in general medical devices are safe. Would you agree with that? I would agree.
6: <laughs> It's a great question. The real answer is we don't really know. We all use medical devices. We're surrounded by medical devices. You know, most of us walk around with devices of one sort or another in our body. If you've had surgery, there's stuff in your body. If you've been in a hospital, you've been exposed to tons of medical devices. So by and large, I think we all have to believe and trust that overall, uh, the devices that are used are safe and are effective, that they uh, achieve their intended purpose. Now, are there problems with devices? Absolutely. We hear about some that are very high-profile. Some of them we think are actually legitimate problems and there's a there's a unforeseen issue with the device. Some of them there may not even be uh, an unforeseen issue with the device. It may actually be working as intended but you know if enough people feel it's not working right then You know, you might have lawsuits about a device. There might be voluntary recalls by the manufacturer. The question of whether that device was ever really harmful or not may never get totally answered. And I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. Um, So, for example, uh, there was a lot of concern in the 1990s about silicone breast implants that were manufactured by um, one of the Dow companies that's now gone bankrupt, but it was either um, Dow Corning or... um, Anyway, there was a lot of concern that these silicone breast implants were causing significant disease in the women in whom they were implanted. And uh, this became a big uh, legal issue. There were big class action lawsuits. Um, It became a political issue. And ultimately, it led to the manufacturer to actually withdraw all of these um, uh, silicone breast implants off the market and pay huge settlements to plaintiffs in these class action lawsuits such that the company went bankrupt. And 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 silicone breast implants were not available on the market for over 10 years. Um, it turns out there was nothing really wrong with these silicone breast implants, that the rate of disease that the women developed who'd had silicone breast implants was identical to the rate of disease in women who'd never had a silicone breast implant. But if you had this implant, um, then there's something in your body. It makes you think, like, could this be the thing that causes the disease? Now, I, I don't want to, um, you know, sugarcoat this too much. There are some problems with breast implants that came to attention. In particular, there's issues around scarring and um, uh, uh, the cap, forming a capsule around these breast implants. So after uh, after many years, they don't perform as well as they do initially. And uh, surgeons became more aware that, in fact, these may not be lifetime. Um, uh, prosthetics and that they may need to be removed in the future. But but just getting back to the issue about causing disease, uh, autoimmune disease, rheumatologic disease, cancer, all these other conditions, that was the reason why the, they were withdrawn from the market and uh, why the manufacturer could not no longer continue in business. And the reason I'm telling the story is it's often very difficult to tell. Just it's often difficult to tell if the device is problematic or not. Just by the same token that we have relatively scant information about the safety of the device when it comes to market, we also have scant information about the harm of the device when it's removed from the market. Generally, the easiest thing for everyone to do is recall the product. So just because something is recalled doesn't mean there's necessarily anything wrong with it. All it means is that the manufacturers made a decision that, you know, at this point, from a business perspective, it's not worth our while.
0: What about medical devices that are currently on the market or recently on the market that have been unsafe or people think they're unsafe? Can you talk about those? Yeah,
6: so there's lots of things. Right now, um, if you watch TV, you'll see lots of ads for a lot lot of drugs and other devices, and you'll see lots of ads asking people have you ever used this medication? Do you have an IVC filter placed? This is one of the big class action lawsuits that big American um, law firms are, are looking for individuals to join the class, and they want you to join. Whether or not you've ever had a problem, you might be entitled to some payment because they're going to do this class action against the manufacturer of, of an IVC filter. Well, IVC filters are um, little metallic nets that are used to prevent blood clots from migrating from the legs up to the lungs uh, where they can cause death. They have some benefits. They may have been overused and some patients may have been harmed by these filters, but they were probably life-saving in other patients. And just because you had a complication with a filter doesn't necessarily mean that it didn't in fact save your life or prevent an even worse
3: problem from happening. So it's very complicated, but you hear about these devices. Dr. Erbach reiterates that, should a health condition arise, it's not always caused by the implant or device. You don't really see people marching on Queen's Park saying, you
6: have to allow manufacturers to continue to sell health products because I've benefited so much from my hernia mesh or from my infusion pump or my pacemaker or whatever it is. People who are okay tend not to be active advocates for anything. They're not terribly upset they don't have a burning platform they basically just live their lives people who were either harmed by products or feel they were very harmed by products feel very strongly that this is a a crisis issue and they have to do something and that's why you'll often get very vocal constituencies around types of products so there's communities around incontinence mesh in women intrauterine devices hernia mesh in men how harmful those devices actually were is sometimes difficult to tell. So it's possible that some of these intrauterine devices were much more risky or harmful than it initially intended, but to know that you'd actually have to study it properly in large numbers of people... And I'm not an expert on every single device that's out there and which ones are actually harmful and which are not. Certainly some of them may have been harmful, but there is a type of cognitive bias called availability bias, which basically means if you're sitting and talking to someone who's got a very compelling story, you're likely to, to and that's got a lot of like real emotional sensory value. So, and it becomes complicated when you're looking at products that may actually help tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people, yet you see a a handful of people who were harmed or feel that they were harmed by that particular product, and then you decide, well, we have to, we have to remove this from the market or we, we can't let people use this anymore. No one really thinks of you know, the tens of thousands of people who may not benefit from this thing. They're really just focused on the smaller number of people who are right in front of them, who are very vocal and feel passionately that they were harmed from it. You know, One thing I've learned is just because you can find a number of individuals who had a product and then had side effects that we think were related to it, doesn't necessarily tell you in fact that it's bad because you're not looking at the other side, um, the counterfactual. There's lots of people who you know, may not have had these problems and there's lots of people who may have actually benefited. I'm not trying to defend any particular device. Yeah. Except to say that the situation is often much more complicated than you can see with a simple vignette or a very compelling human story, which is obviously very emotionally compelling. So when people hear MESH, all, all they think is the, these terrible news stories. Yeah, about I mesh.
0: think, oh, I don't want to have one of those
6: The negative story with MESH comes from its use among women for incontinence, for bladder suspension procedures, for these types of pelvic conditions. And there may be an issue in certain people who have problems caused by mesh. So clearly it can, it can cause specific problems that can be very debilitating for those people. Just setting aside the pelvic mesh for a moment though, we use mesh in surgery for all sorts of other things that have nothing to do with incontinence or pelvic organ prolapse. So for example, we use hernia mesh almost routinely to repair hernias in the abdomen. Hernias are incredibly common you know, probably 30 to 40% of every man in Canada is gonna develop a hernia in his lifetime. If you sit in a subway car, you're like, there's gonna be 50 men who've had a hernia repair. Almost all of them have probably had mesh. It's the standard way of repairing hernias right now. So there's millions of hernia repairs done every year. Some proportion of them are gonna have a problem, pain or a recurrence of the hernia or, or something. If you have a mesh implanted, what I've seen is you're gonna blame the mesh. If you have a hernia repair, you develop pain. Uh, if you've had a mesh implanted, you're gonna say, or firmly believe, that mesh is causing my pain. If you didn't have a mesh implanted, you just have what we call chronic post-operative pain. There's nothing specific to blame.
0: It'd be really interesting to do a study where maybe some people don't know whether or not they're they've been implanted with mesh and then actually see what happens
6: so there aren't a lot of those double blind studies in for surgical procedures but we do have studies that compare the rate of pain among patients who've had mesh and haven't had mesh and in fact the rates of chronic pain are almost the same so that doesn't help the people who are debilitated by chronic pain that they legitimately and honestly and completely believe was caused by this foreign body. And some patients will go and try and find a surgeon who can remove it. It's not that easy to remove hernia mesh. And most of the time, it does not solve the person's problem. So people with chronic pain who go and have their mesh removed, the chances are they're still going to have exactly the same symptoms, maybe worse, a few months after they've had the operation
3: to remove that device. We just heard that oftentimes patients blame some of their health mishaps on a device that might actually be helping them. But sometimes they're not wrong. This,
6: this sort of brings up the question of what it means when a device isn't working. Obviously, often it's just that particular device in that particular person it doesn't necessarily mean that all of these devices are faulty as a whole class and they all need to be removed from every individual who's ever had it implanted.
0: Would you agree with the fact that I think the majority of the people are under that impression that if this particular medical device is causing a particular problem and this problem skip a few steps forward and now all of these medical devices that are implanted in everyone need to be recalled and need to be removed because it causes problems for everyone do you think that most people are under that impression or not i think really? uh i think
6: people probably do believe that but it's not so, it's not something that doctors do often health canada has recalled lots of products you know recall can mean All sorts of different things. You know, often the way Health Canada does their documentation, uh, sometimes a recall event is just around uh, changing the labeling on a package or the packaging or instructions for use or something. Doesn't necessarily mean there's any modification to the product. Certainly doesn't mean it's been withdrawn from the market necessarily. So there's a lot of confusing language around what a recall means, but. When you talk about like recall of spinach from the grocery store because it's in, infected with E. coli, people know like what that means is every single bag of, bag of spinach is going to the incinerator, right? That's not the way it works with a recall of medical devices. It's not. It's not like you know recalling uh, a batch of hamburger meat or cereal or something like that.
0: It could be just a little modification or. Repurposing or repackaging. Right.
6: There's an example of a a heart valve that was implanted in patients with valve disease in the 70s and 80s that was one of these old mechanical designs and had a a ball and wire frame that after a while it became clear that this device could seriously malfunction. The ball could come loose or the wire, I'm not sure exactly the details. And then that led to this discussion, well, what do we do with all the people who've had this ball valve uh, implanted? And people looked at this critically because to do open heart surgery to take out this valve and replace it with a new valve, in a person in whom the valve is functioning well, I mean, that also introduces a whole set of risks. And overall, based on the cost-benefit analyses, it was clear that the best thing to do was just leave those people alone. Most of them would be perfectly fine. And then hopefully you can identify individuals in whom their valves malfunction and you could replace them at that point. It was helpful to know you had to follow and monitor those people more closely, but it was never the recommendation that every single person who's had this
5: uh, valve implanted needs to have it explanted and replaced. We also reached out to Lindsey a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Toronto living with type one diabetes. We asked her about her experience getting diagnosed and how type one diabetes impacted her childhood.
4: So when I was in grade three, I was sick a lot and we didn't really know what was going on. It was like a lot of headaches, a lot of stomach aches, missing a lot of school to the point that I almost had to redo that grade. And the thing that really tipped my parents off was I had to go to the washroom a lot during the night. And they were speaking to friends who had had some a daughter recently diagnosed with diabetes. So they took me in with that in mind, and very quickly they did like routine blood tests, uh, and then I was sent up to London, Ontario, and uh, they pretty quickly realized what it was. My blood sugar was like extremely high, and it was just like the fluctuations that were making me sick like all the time. So as soon as I was diagnosed, I started on syringes like that day.
0: So insulin syringes were. The first medical device that you used to manage your disease, is that correct? Yes, they were. How was that experience?
4: At first, it was terrifying, but I got used to it fairly quickly, I would say. So I was eight when I was diagnosed, and it was almost my ninth birthday. And I think it was within like the first few months that I started doing the injections myself. But before that, my parents uh, were doing them for me, which was sometimes like a big to do. Like, I remember times where they had to chase me around the house at school i was from a very small town uh, and a small school and i think that helped in a way because my teacher was very understanding and she also wanted my class to understand so they had like teaching materials that my class sat through which on the one hand was nice but then it also brought a lot of attention which i didn't necessarily love
0: so it's a double-edged sword
4: yes exactly yeah. I mean, everything about my life changed basically like it implements a structure that you didn't have before and like a level of vulnerability that you didn't have at all before. Like I had to eat every two hours, every day, a certain amount of food. It didn't matter what. So yeah, the, like my whole day was kind of planned out around this and it didn't matter how I was feeling or like, you know, what I really wanted, but that like had to be the way that it was.
5: You just heard how drastically Lindsay's life had changed when she received her diagnosis. Fortunately, she's now better able to manage her disease with a medical device called an insulin pump. We asked Lindsay to tell us a little bit about how her insulin pump works and its effect on her quality of life.
4: It's a lot better. It definitely changed the game for me. So basically now I can give myself insulin at the time of or just before when I want to eat something. So you know, you're not deciding At the beginning of the day, what you're going to be eating and when throughout the day. Like now I can kind of freely eat when I want and to more of a degree what I want by far, maybe more so than I should, in fact. But yeah, it's like it's a lot more flexible and there are a lot more opportunities to tailor your insulin levels to like your body and how it fluctuates throughout the day.
0: And is this implanted in your abdomen? Is that how it works?
4: So it isn't. Implanted, It's like a plastic cannula, and it is in the abdomen, but I have to move where it is every three days. So, yeah, basically you, like, sort of inject it with a needle, you remove the needle, and just the plastic cannula remains, and then you just move that around, like, your abdomen every three days, and then you use it throughout that time, and you have, like, baseline insulin levels throughout the day that you can program, and then when you eat, give yourself, like, a bolus of insulin for that.
0: Do you know anything about how it works? Oh, so...
4: That's actually one thing. It's only, it doesn't track anything internally. So like I, with the help of my endocrinologist, will like program these levels based on my readings. And then basically we're just tailoring it to try to make it better and better. But there's no internal feedback from the system. It's all just like, it is giving me these baseline amounts of insulin throughout the day, like different amounts, different times. And then I count all the carbohydrates I eat Uh, Like every time I eat everything, I have to monitor it. And you also have to like...
0: Do you monitor that on the device or is it separate and then you have to input it later?
4: One of the great things about the pump is you can set up insulin to carbohydrate ratios throughout the day. So before that was the case, you would have to think, okay, I'm having this many carbohydrates and then this is my ratio. And then I need to figure that out how much insulin based on that. So now I just need to think how many carbohydrates am I having? I can input that and then it will calculate the how much insulin I need for that amount of carbohydrates because you also have to take exercise into account throughout your day as well so like you'd give yourself less insulin if you knew you were going to be walking somewhere even for example there's a lot of
0: factors you have to think about other than just carbohydrates
4: yeah yeah any sort of energy expenditure basically
0: but all of that can be programmed into the pump
4: no none of that can be so that's all like subjective so I'm pretty sensitive to exercise in terms of my blood sugars. So for example, even in the morning, my walk from the subway to CAMH, I have to think about that and I have to give myself less insulin for the amount of breakfast I had just to make sure that I don't go low from the walk.
5: As you heard from Dr. Erbach earlier, it's important for device manufacturers to listen to feedback from patients in order to deliver quality products. As an end user, we were curious to hear what Lindsay had to say on what can be done to make her device better.
4: I would like it to be a bit smaller, definitely. But the biggest thing, which I think is like what they're trying to do most right now is to combine a continuous glucose monitor with the pump so you can get that feedback. So right now, for example, I'm wearing like a little device in my arm that I can have in for two weeks and you can just swipe the meter to get your reading but that doesn't communicate with the insulin pump. Okay. But if, that, if those two things could communicate and then based on that feedback of the blood glucose level, then so it could make changes. So something you have to input
0: like, in yourself.
4: Yeah, something that, where it could communicate that or it had the device implanted that so it could also... It would basically be like a pancreas of sorts, like a lot closer than this is. But overall, I'm like, I mean, I'm really pleased with this. My life would definitely be a lot more difficult if I were still doing injections.
5: As we just heard, living with type 1 diabetes is clearly challenging. Thankfully, the advent of insulin pumps have provided a more convenient way for patients to manage their symptoms. Lindsay shares the biggest impact her pump has had on her life.
4: I think the biggest thing is it allows me a lot more flexibility and freedom in my life that I didn't have when I was still doing the injections. And it's also definitely helped me better manage my diabetes because you can input these levels throughout the day to help better follow your own, like natural blood glucose rhythms.
11: We've just heard about the amazing difference that having an insulin pump has made in Lindsay's life and how symptoms of type one diabetes can be quite manageable today in 2018. However, this definitely wasn't always the case. And before insulin was discovered right here in Toronto, Diabetes was an extremely deadly disease that doctors could identify, but really couldn't do much for, other than recommend a strict diet that had little impact. In 1923, Canadian scientists Frederick Banting and John McLeod won the Nobel Prize for the discovery of this pancreatic hormone. Banting worked in McLeod's physiology lab here at the University of Toronto, together with medical student Charles Best and James Collop, a biochemist who helped isolate the hormone so that it was safe to inject as a treatment. In 1922, Leonard Thompson, a 14-year-old boy, was the first person with diabetes to be successfully treated with, in this case, a canine pancreatic extract. Over the next decades, progress was made in variations of insulin extract and additives that could prolong its effect. It also became the first human protein to be chemically synthesized, and later recombinant DNA techniques were used to produce synthetic human insulin to replace the insulin derived from animals. Treatment remained one or two daily injections with a needle until in the 1970s when continuous subcutaneous insulin infusion pump therapy was introduced. As Lindsay mentioned, this method of insulin intake has many advantages over the previous method. Originally, there was a fear that hypoglycemia or low blood sugar would more often result from this therapy and be a severe consequence. However, it was concluded that the benefits outweighed the risks and although prior to the late 1990s, few children and adolescents were using a pump, it has become an increasingly popular and more technologically advanced option.
3: Here's Dr. Erbach for some final insights.
0: Do you have any personal recommendations for how we can sort of remove this negative stigma around medical devices in society and help people understand that they actually are pretty safe?
6: First is to just, people have to understand these devices are everywhere and they they cause a huge amount of benefit. We could not deliver the type of care that people expect in the modern world Without access to medical devices, we couldn't do um, you know the types of surgical procedures that I do without medical devices. Like people would have big operations, stay in hospital for you know days or weeks, and uh, get all sorts of complications because we can't use technologies to do less invasive and and safer surgeries. So, the first part of public education is to understand how beneficial most devices are and the fact that really our ability to do modern medical care is predicated on a lot of these technologies. And the second thing is just for people to remember problems can happen, especially with implanted medical devices. They're probably fine. And when I say probably, I'm, I'm not saying 51% are fine. Like, unfortunately, I can't give you an, an a number. We're, we're trying to do research to figure out, well, how common are problems. But I would say the overwhelming majority of these devices are are safe and effective and work exactly as intended. But we don't know that. So uh, I think if people understood at the outset that any type of medical device could have problems, if you're considering getting a device, having something implanted, it's worthwhile to know, is there an alternative? Because often you don't have to have something implanted in your body. Not everything is like, say, a hernia repair, where there's really no other good way to fix it. You know, sometimes uh, people are thinking of using implantable devices for something like esophageal reflux, like heartburn symptoms, for which there's very effective other medications, Uh, some sort of contraceptive devices. There might be new fancy devices that are being marketed, but there might be tried-and-true old products that have been used for decades and decades in women, you know, since the 1970s without problems. So often with devices... Old is actually not that bad, um, uh, bad a consideration. you know. The newest thing that's just been developed, these aren't plasma screen TVs or the new iPhone where the chances are this is really going to be much better than your previous iPhone. De- devices don't necessarily work that way because the body is complex and biology is unpredictable. What I tell people is understand the um, investigational aspect of all new devices. And because of that, we should be aware that problems may happen. Uh, When they happen, doctors and patients as well should understand that they need to be reported. So um, a lot of doctors don't really understand that there's no one out there collecting data on, um, on medical device use or implanted products. And really, it's our responsibility as doctors, when we encounter something that we think is a device problem, to report it to the manufacturer or to Health Canada so that they can figure out is this really a problem or is this kind of a
3: one-off bad luck situation?
5: We hope you enjoyed this episode. Thanks to all of our guests for sharing their expertise and experiences.
3: A special shout out to Bonnie, Richie, Aditi, and Grace for working with us to put together the content for this episode, as well as Max for the audio editing. Before you go, here's a teaser for our next episode on the opioid crisis.
2: So when they started uh, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, opioids were not known to have, the, the, the science was not so advanced. So we thought that probably addiction and overdose was going to be rare, very rare. Now, in the last uh, 10 years, 15 years, especially in North America, there has been a lot of uh, new research studies done. Uh, with administrative large databases, and we found that this is really not rare. A lot of people may end up getting addicted to these medications, and when they get addicted, they may abuse and overdose. Or even those who are not addicted, they may overdose and die. Not even being addicted may just be an accident.
5: Until next time, keep it raw.
7: Raw Talk podcast is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the university. To learn more about the show, visit our website at rawtalkpodcast.com and stay up to date by following us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, at Raw Talk Podcast. Support the show by using the affiliate link on our website when you shop on Amazon. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts, and rate us five stars. Until next time, keep it raw.
3: might not like the answer. <laughs>